My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So Kat put up her bird feeders, uh, primarily her uh, hummingbird feeders, not one but two. And you know you're an adult when you have a bird feeder. But uh, you you know you're in a sitcom when they're overtaken by Africanized killer bees. They're not Africanized killer bees. They were just bees. Turns out the, the hummingbird feeder has has two different settings. Peaceful morning and uh, end of world swarm. I took care of the bee situation for you. Don't worry. What did you do exactly to fix the bee situation? I covered the holes with tea bags and then I put it in a corral bag. <laughs> it's, it's like she's negotiating sugar water rights with an insect mob boss. <laughs> I went out and I said, listen, this is not for you. If you'd like, I can create a separate space for you, but this is not for you. Yeah. Meanwhile, you're like, murder them. <laughs> I didn't want to murder them, but it was a little bit alarming when I looked out and they're swarming on our uh, on our balcony. And there yes, were like eight. Well, they were swarming. All you need is eight. Eight is considered a swarm. Eight is four, enough. Four is a swarm. <laughs> <laughs> as uh, as far as I'm concerned. But I was expecting to sit out there and have my coffee and enjoy a peaceful morning watching hummingbirds mm -hmm. and killer bees show up. It's like, it's like throwing a party, expecting a few friends to come along, and the next thing you know, the local biker gang is there. Sure, they're intimidating, but boy, can they dance. So anyway, welcome to Ecuador, home of the killer bees. They're not killer bees. They're just bees also known as killer bees. But it's not because <laughs> they are especially murderous. They're just a little more aggressive. They're not even, they're not even. Uh, yeah, okay. They're fine. All right. Well, so she, she bagged up the, uh, the bird feeder and we've had no incident since then because the second hummingbird feeder she has, apparently the holes are too small for the bees. I don't know what the difference is. It's crazy. Yeah, but I haven't had to apply any tea bags to that one. Cat was teabagging killer bees. Well, there's the title. <laughs> well, today I'm going to talk about porn 
Oh, uh, but but not not like what you're thinking. I'm I'm talking about what's being called ruin porn. In recent years, this term has found its way into our vocabulary. Ruin porn. Not my vocabulary. No, not mine either. Until just uh, the day before yesterday, when I wrote this. <laughs> um, it encompasses a growing interest in the decaying and dilapidated and the deserted. Ooh, I think this is very interesting that that's what you're talking about today because you just wait. Okay, okay. I've become a big fan of a lot of these urban explorer internet uh, YouTube channels where they'll go into a like an abandoned mansion and uh, poke around and stuff. It's just it's it's fascinating. I find it very uncomfortable and I don't like it at all. At the heart of this fascination lies a complex web of emotions from nostalgia to a sad reflection of um, of impermanence. It reminds us that we're all just temporary and abandoned amusement parks serve as the perfect examples of this phenomenon. I'm sorry, do most people feel uncomfortable when they're reminded that they're not permanent? Because that is a very comforting feeling for me. <laughs> Amusement parks once filled with the joyful screams of children and the vibrant ambience of games and rides, these now silent grounds Thank goodness. stand as a haunting relic. But what draws us? What is it? I don't know. Maybe it's just me. But what, what does draw us to these rusting carousels and overgrown funhouses? Pheromones? No, that's what bees use. Uh, uh, is it a morbid curiosity, a yearning for a past that's gone? Or is it just a reminder of the transient nature of, of what we make, of our creations, that no matter how creative we can be and no matter how complex our structures are, Eventually, they're just going to rot away. The parks serve as a reminder that joy can be fleeting and that most vibrant places in the world can pl be plunged into desolation. Again, do you need an abandoned amusement park to be reminded of these things? No, but it's just it's such a juxtaposition of a once joyful place and now it's just eerie and dilapidated. Mm, like a blockbuster. Blockbuster. There's some ruined porn I'd like to watch. Unfortunately, most of those blockbuster buildings have been taken over by porn shops. <laughs> so, porn is stealing your ruined porn? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I hate that. But when I picture an abandoned amusement park, I picture a creaking, rusted carousel horse, uh, fading murals... Whispers of tales when dreams were alive and magic was just a ticket stop away. But today we're left with just the skeletal remains. There are many parks like these. Some are more terrifying than others. For example, in the heart of Pripyat, Ukraine is a haunting testament to humanity's ambitions and tragedies. Pripyat's amusement park was once a, a gleaming symbol of Soviet leisure and prosperity. It's now forever remembered as the playground adjacent to one of history's most devastating nuclear disasters. The park was set to officially open on May 1st, 1986 as part of the May Day celebrations. Ironically, this date was just days before the catastrophic events on April 26th, 1986, when reactor number four at the nearby Chernobyl nuclear power plant exploded, releasing vast amounts of radioactive particles and steam into the atmosphere. What, what, what was the name of that place? Chernobyl. 
Oh, okay. In a cruel twist of fate, the park was briefly opened on April 27th to distract the city's inhabitants of the unfolding disaster. Did you know that? I did not. Hey, everybody, you're radioactive. Come ride the bumper cars on us. Within hours, the park was hastily evacuated like the rest of the town, leaving it trapped in a radioactive time capsule. The eeriness factor of Pripyat's amusement park is profound. The iconic Ferris wheel, which never had the chance to complete its first official cycle, now stands untouched. Its yellow bench seats, fading, but still there. Ferris wheel, bumper cars, lots of other attractions, serve as a stark, silent monument to the 50,000 inhabitants who were forced to abandon their homes, their lives, and futures in Pripyat. Watching some YouTube videos, uh, those who have walked through that park recently can't help but feel the weight of the invisible radioactive threat that still lingers. The wind seems to carry ghostly echoes of children's laughter replaced moments later by the chilling reality of Geiger counters clicking incessantly. And to make it even more creepy, the Chernobyl reactor looms in the background. Mm -hmm. Just a silent behemoth, a constant grim reminder of the day the world stood still for the people of Pripyat. Closer to home, Six Flags, New Orleans, in the vibrant heart of the American South. New Orleans, it's always been a city of life, of music, of culture, of course, jazz, Mardi Gras. Axeman. Axeman. Its resilience has been tested repeatedly by the forces of nature, but none more devastating than Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Mm. Among the city's many casualties was a symbol of joy and escape. Six Flags, New Orleans. You know, I've never been to a Six Flags. I don't think I've ever been to a Six Flags. And I love an amusement park. Well, the Six Flags was originally known as Jazzland, and the park opened its doors in the year 2000. It was later overtaken by Six Flags, the corporation, in 2003. And it served as a family's favorite retreat for years. It was always busy, it was teeming with life, laughter, and thrill seekers, riding the roller coasters and numerous attractions. I don't think I like the idea of an amusement park called Jazzland. Why is that? Well, I just feel like jazz, to me, feels unstructured and <laughs> loosey-goosey. Improvised. Yeah. yeah, and that's not how I want my amusement parks. <laughs> you want a little more structure Yeah. in the roller coasters. Yeah. Okay, I get that. Sure, it makes sense. But then Katrina hit, and the park was submerged under seven feet of flood water Jesus. for over a month. The devastation was total. Mm. There were some initial plans and promises to restore and reopen, but uh, the financial and logistical challenges proved to be way too much. The park was permanently closed and its gates were shut to the public, but of course not to the relentless march of time and nature. Six Flags New Orleans is eerie. It's as though the park is frozen in a post-apocalyptic world where humanity has vanished. Rotting attractions from roller coasters to carousels stand as just rusty skeletons. Puddles of standing water, remnants of the deluge that brought the park to its knees reflect the dilapidated structures and it adds to the whole haunting atmosphere. There are, you walk into, I, there's actually a documentary I watched. It, it's called Closed for Storm, which was the final announcement they put on the marquee. Mm. 
at Six Flags. It's a documentary film by a Canadian YouTube creator named Jake Williams of Bright Sun Films. And um, he, he takes former employees of the park back into the park. And it's so crazy because like the uniform and costuming department is all still there and all of the costumes are still on racks. Mm. Yeah, mm. that seems creepy. Also, that brings me to a question that I always have about these urban explorers. Like, do you have permission to be on this property? How is he taking people in there? Did he get He got permission, he got permission. in okay. this case. But a lot of those urban explorers, they go, I can't tell you where I'm at because I'm not supposed to be here. I don't like that. But they wandered through the, the park and like the concessions, the... The menu boards are still up with the prices reflecting 2005 mm. and uh, the style and paint jobs and fashions of the time just frozen in that moment. Nature has begun to reclaim the space. Vines are creeping over the tracks of the roller coasters. And you'll be happy to hear this, sweetie. Wildlife has taken up residence. Yeah. I can't help but think of the movie 12 Monkeys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's it's a juxtaposition of wilderness and, and mechanization. It's it's just weird. The silence is golden. With the exception of the occasional call of a bird or rustle of leaves is a chilling reminder that those days of bustling sounds of joy and excitement are no longer there. You say chilling, I say comforting. One of the most poignant symbols within the park is the Ferris Wheel One, offering breathtaking views of the city and the surrounding wetlands. It now stands immobile. Its seats swinging gently in the breeze, waiting for riders that will never come, as well as the marquee that, as far as I know, until recently anyway, still said closed for storm. There are countless abandoned amusement parks all over the world. There's several in Japan. One is called Gulliver's Kingdom, and it's in the shadow of Mount Fuji. Gulliver's Kingdom was a theme park inspired by Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels. The highlight was an enormous statue of Gulliver, now left in decay, and its adjacency to Aokigahara, which is often termed the suicide forest, Mm. adds a layer of eeriness to its already Mm -hmm. desolate landscape. I can't help but think that eons from now, people will find this giant sculpture in the middle of nowhere and think, that was probably a religious thing. Oh, yeah. Then perched atop North Carolina's Beach Mountain, the Land of Oz amusement park. It transported visitors to the whimsical world of the Wizard of Oz, and it opened in the 70s, but because of financial strains, it closed up. The, see, that I can see as being very creepy, even yeah. when it was open. You never liked the Wizard of Oz, did you? No. Mm. Did you know that the uh, part played, that the part of the wizard was originally offered to W.C. Fields? I did not know that. He would have been perfect for that. Because of the financial strains, it closed years and years and years ago, and it's left behind an overgrown yellow brick road and fading Oz memorabilia. Venturing there today feels like a haunting walk through Dorothy's dream long after she's proclaimed there's no place like home. Mm. Each of these parks in their prime offered an escape into a fantastical world, promising adventure and thrill and wonder today. It's just a poignant reminder of the transitory nature of manufactured joy with their decaying structures and overgrown landscapes painting a very sad portrait of dreams left behind. 
So why are we drawn to ruin porn? Well, not to ruin porn, but to ruin porn. You know what I'm talking about. It taps into an aesthetic appreciation of decay where nature reclaims artificial structures, presenting a unique visual blend of past human achievements and endeavors and relentless natural forces. Once bustling with life and human achievement, abandoned amusement parks, they serve as a perfect canvas for this sort of thing. And it feeds our morbid curiosity and hunger for hauntingly beautiful visuals. That's why I still go to the website DeviantArt. The stark contrast between these parks' past and present state heightens our emotional response as human beings. Whether or not one has personal memories associated with a particular park, the universal imagery of children laughing and families bonding and the quintessential sounds of of an amusement park are embedded in our collective psyche. This shared cultural memory makes the decay even more impactful as it feels like a part of our own history is fading away. Lastly, abandoned amusement parks serve as a reminder of the impermanence of all things. They echo the Buddhist concept of anicca, emphasizing that nothing lasts forever, no matter how grand or joyous or significant. Everything is subject to change as well as decay. In these silent, rusting grounds, we confront our own mortality, making the experience all the more profound. It's a deeply psychological human response. Also, it's spooky. Every Scooby-Doo episode was in an abandoned amusement park (laughs) for a reason, people. It's literature. Come on. I got my information from Atlas Obscura, Vice Magazine, The Guardian, and uh, bits and pieces from that documentary, Closed for Storm, which is available, I think, on Netflix and Amazon and places like that. If you're interested in that sort of thing, that documentary brings it into stark focus. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parenting kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. 
I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids and they live about 3,000 miles away and my daughter is expecting a child and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. And now, that thing in the middle. When Disneyland opened in 1955, there were five themed neighborhoods. Adventureland, Frontierland, Fantasyland, Main Street USA, and Tomorrowland. When Tomorrowland opened in 1955, it was designed to look like a year in the distant future. 1986. Christy sent an email, hey guys, normally wouldn't write, but just had a weird little boo effect. I was listening to the episode about the Myrtle Plantation. I intentionally skipped because where I'm from, Baton Rouge, LA, everyone knows the story of Chloe. Some think it's, it's Southern propaganda. Some think it's real. Horrible times full of horrible stories. I frequently visited the plantation while I was in Girl Scouts. Yes, we went there oh. every year. Okay. And we stayed in the woods nearby for the weekend right after. Ooh. Great idea for seven to nine-year-old girls. Probably why I can't listen to the story now. PTSD. But seriously. Well, I switched to And That's Why We Drink. And they were covering the exact same story. <laughs> Nothing major, but I thought it was worth a mention. Still catching up on episodes, but love y'all, and I love y'all's on-air chemistry. Hopefully one day I can join the Patreon group. Would love to talk to you freaks. Flying my freak flag high, and then there's like an emoji of a puff of smoke. I always read that as a fart. <laughs> Is that not what that's supposed to be? <laughs> I think she's implying something else. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, hi. Yeah. Oh, hi. Okay, hi. Oh, hi. No. Biggie Cheese Esquire sent us a message on Instagram of a uh, video that was posted on TikTok, and it was a, a voicemail left for someone from a debt collector or something, and it was absolutely bonkers. And I was like, that's so weird. I got a call just like this. I wrote back to Biggie, have we ever talked about that? And they wrote, oh my God, what was it like? So I said that I would, I would share that story. I had student debt, as so many of us do. And I was behind on my payments. This is a brief period of time when I was very, very poor. Now, 
<laughs> I got this voicemail, and it went something like this. This is a message for Katrina Walls. You owe money. This is a debt collection call. And it went on like that wow. forever. But the voice fluctuated, so sometimes it was like, and sometimes it was like, it was very upsetting and um, did not make me more likely to pay that bill. <laughs> Just so we're all clear. What a weird strategy that is. Mm. Impersonate a fire demon. It must be just boredom. What are they gonna do next? Threaten to flatten our penises? <laughs> Wanna learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. Henry Ford. Now, we all know quite a bit about Henry Ford and his he innovations. Was, he was the car guy, right? He was the car guy, <laughs> yes. Um, of course, he didn't invent the car, but he did uh, make a lot of strides and changes when it came to like the assembly line and the method of building cars. The assembly line method of production had a major impact on vehicle manufacturing. In addition, Ford shocked Detroit by initiating the $5 eight-hour workday, which for most people was a doubling of their pay. The assembly line raised the standard of living for families and contributed to the rise of the American consumer economy after World War I. By the end of the Model T's run in 1927, 15 million had been built and sold which is amazing. Ford was always looking for ways to streamline the process of building cars and make his business more efficient. And one of the ways that he wanted to do that was by outsourcing as little as possible. 
Ford was renowned for his desire to have complete control over every aspect of his car manufacturing process. Most of the components were built in-house. At one point, Ford Motor Company worked to produce their own steel, glass, plastics, and power. But rubber, what to do about rubber? Harvey Firestone, the Firestone tire guy. Yeah, they were buds, and uh, Henry Ford got most of his tires from the Firestone guy. But he had this idea. He wanted to secure a reliable source of rubber for his car manufacturing himself so that, once again, he could control that aspect of his car building process. Okay. He also had an idea that he wanted to create better living conditions for his workers, and he had very specific ideas about what that meant. Around this time, he was also very concerned about the possibility of a European monopoly on rubber because a lot of Brazilian rubber trees were being transported to plantations in tropical colonies that were at that time under British control. So how do you manufacture your own rubber for millions of cars? His goal was to establish a self-sustaining rubber plantation and a model industrial town, a town built for his employees to live and work in. So he decided to build a plantation and a miniature Midwest factory town in the middle of the Amazon jungle. It would be called Fordlandia. In 1928, Henry Ford purchased 2.5 million acres of land called Boa Vista from the Brazilian government. This is where he would build his town. He had bungalows designed in Michigan, built. He even brought in Albert Kahn, an architect who was largely responsible for Detroit's skyscrapers and skyline, in to design the hospital. He wanted to build his own idea of the ideal American town, Cape Cod-style houses, streets lined with light posts and bright red fire hydrants in the middle of the jungle. But those working in his American town would be Brazilians. And he created this ideal vision without concern for the employee's needs, wants, or culture. There were culture clashes almost immediately between the local population and American managers. Sure, there were swimming pools, there was a tennis court and golf course, but Ford had a very particular understanding about what a proper American diet should be. <laughs> so he decided he would impose that on the locals. Brown rice, whole wheat bread, canned peaches, oatmeal. That's it? Yeah. That was it. That was it. Hey, that's all you get, but at least you've got fire hydrants. It wasn't just that Henry Ford was imposing this quote-unquote American lifestyle on Brazilian workers. It was that he had a very interesting idea about what the ideal American lifestyle was. So it was two times removed mm. from what these Brazilians were looking forward to. Alcohol, relationships with women, tobacco, and even soccer were forbidden within the town. Can you imagine saying to Brazilians, you can't watch soccer or talk about soccer or play soccer? Brazilians! The project suffered from mismanagement, lack of understanding of the local environment, <laughs> to say the least, and a failure to adapt to the social and economic conditions of the regions, which led to an unstable workforce, unrest, and violence. 
Even worse, there were mandatory weekend activities. Oh, great. Like square dancing and poetry readings. What? 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 Okay, so Henry Ford, big square dance fan. Yeah. He had a summer home, or actually a winter home, in Fort Myers, Florida, right Right. next to Thomas Edison's. Mm -hmm. And in his house, he had one room, one huge room, just for square dancing. Yeah. That's how much... He loved square dancing. He thought it was important, not just enjoyable, but important. How important? Important enough that he imposed it on Brazilians working at a rubber plantation (laughs) in the middle of the forest. It was wholesome, goddammit. Plus canned peaches. In addition to these short-sighted social issues, there was more trouble for Fordlandia. The land where it was built turned out to be hilly, rocky, and not very fertile. Unfortunately, none of the managers Ford had brought to his Amazonian utopia had expertise in tropical agriculture, which seems pretty friggin' baseline, (laughs) if you ask me. Now, in the wild, rubber trees naturally grow apart from each other as a defense mechanism against diseases and pests, and they often grow near larger trees of different species for additional support. But in Fordlandia, of course, they were all planted close together in the plantation, making it very easy for tree blight, for ants and lace bugs and leaf caterpillars. Oh, also, the location chosen wasn't suitable for rubber cultivation. So he overlooked a few things. Yeah. That seemed pretty obvious. Yeah. But he got the square dancing in. Uh, I mean, important things checked off that list. Climate, soil conditions, not ideal for rubber. Most rubber plantations that are successful are in Southwest Asia. And I guess the idea was, well, it's warm in Southeast Asia. It's also warm in Brazil. Hmm. I don't know. So the workers were not feeling the vibe. Management didn't know what they were doing. The land itself was not super suitable for the project as a whole. Things are going great. In 1930, the native workers got fed up with Ford's strict diet and the way it was being distributed, and they revolted against the town's cafeteria. It was called the Breaking Pans. And the rebels were serious. They cut the telegraph wires, they chased away the managers, and the town's cooks into the jungle for a few days. It was chaos. The Brazilian army eventually showed up and ended the revolt. And Ford continued to pour money into this project, including bringing a botanist in to figure out why the trees weren't thriving. And the answer is, they don't thrive there. He still refused to adapt to the social and economic conditions of the region. Ford was very stubborn, like historically stubborn, and didn't want to ask the experts how to do things better. Hmm. So the project continued to fail. Ford continued to dump money into it, including buying more land and starting again from scratch. But it didn't work. The project failed to integrate with the local community and neglected to consider so much that was so important to any sort of success. At some point, I know he was a stubborn guy, Mm. but at some point, one has to go, it's time to cut this project loose. And eventually that did happen. The things that we've talked about are more than enough reasons to bail on this project. And it did lead to the failure of Fordlandia as a rubber plantation and industrial town. It's estimated that Ford lost over $20 million building this weird rubber utopia. Hmm. 
a place that he never even visited. Now, let's get into ruin porn. (laughs) (laughs) Although Fordlandia did fail, remnants of the project can still be found in the area. Weeds grow over some of the American-style bungalows, but some buildings, such as the hospital, managers' houses, and some residences still exist. Wow. And almost 2,000 people still live there. Really? Though they're making their living fishing and farming rather than anything to do with rubber production. There's no infrastructure. No. It's basically people who have set up shop in an abandoned amusement park. Wouldn't it be weird, though, if still every Saturday night they square danced? It's a big part of their culture now, yeah. A 2009 NPR article reported not one drop of latex from Fordlandia ever made it into a Ford car. So it was a huge failure. And the fact that I had never heard of it before is mind-blowing to me. And I think has to do with some sort of PR campaign. I wonder how difficult it is to get to that location now. It's not easy. It's never been easy to get there. So there's no guided tour or anything? (laughs) No, but maybe we could make one. I'd be really interested in seeing it. I got my information from Ripley's Believe It or Not, autoblog.com, and npr.org. We've had a lot of emails and messages wanting to know how Haggis did with uh, having his eyes ripped out. And oof, um, Friday he had them out. Yep. And he seemed to be doing well. Mm-hmm. And then about 3.30 in the morning, well, you tell it. You were the one that was with him at 3.30 in the morning. Uh, He coughed and blood started spurting out of one of his eye holes. Mm. Oh, content warning, by the way, in case you're sensitive to this kind of thing. Um, And so I reached out to the vet and I said, I don't like this. We need to bring him in. And he was like, cool. And then we did. And he had to go back in to surgery to uh, repair a cauterized blood vessel that apparently hadn't cauterized the way it needed to. So he had two surgeries in two days. Poor little guy has been sleeping for the past 20 hours or so. He's doing great, though. He's doing great, though. He's such a trooper. I have thrown up more probably (laughs) in the past 24 hours than I have in the past 10 years. It is incredibly stressful and um, also real gross. I accidentally saw part of a video of the surgery, and I wish that I hadn't. Yeah, they posted it on their Facebook page. I guess they can do that. I will say this about the the vet. Um, For the love of God, he answered your text at four in the morning and opened up the veterinary office in order to see us. Yeah, it was He was standing there in the dark waiting for us to show up in a cab at four in the morning. It was incredible. So we love that guy. And we love you. Thank you so much for all your kind wishes and your scritches and kisses for haggis. Uh, We have been passing them along. (laughs) We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Henceforth, the box of oddities commits to the telling of stories, stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. Mana, mana.
If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.